Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Uh, it's great to be with you, um, uh, and great to see some familiar faces and some new faces. Um, well, presumably not new faces, they're just your faces, but like, <laughs> ones I haven't seen at least. Um, so it's great to see you, great to be here, uh, and it's always helpful for me just to get a feel of uh, like who, for whom is this their first time, and who has already done a year, because this is a two-year course. Some of you I know will be on year two, some on year one. So uh, if this is your first time at School of Theology, can you just raise your hand so I can... All right. Okay, a good number of you. If you've done it before, hands up. Okay, I feel like there were more hands than... Like, did people just put up a right hand and then a left hand? Because I feel like that's about... That's a bit odd. Uh, I won't push that any further. Okay, great. That's just helpful. For, well, I thought it'd be helpful for me to know. It's actually just confused me more, but there we go. Um, great. Okay, so what we're going to do is, and this will be a pattern right through School of Theology, is that we're basically walking through, bless you, uh, we're walking through the Bible and this year we're looking at the New Testament and roughly what you'll do each time is you'll look at a section of scripture, um, a few books or one book perhaps, and then a theme that emerges from that book or that that section of books. So today we're going to look at the Synoptic Gospels and I'll explain what that word means in a moment, Um, in fact what both those words mean in a moment, Uh, but then we're also going to look at a theme that emerges from the Gospels which is the kingdom of God. And so it will roughly fall into those two halves today. Um, And as Tom has already said, do feel free to ask questions. Uh, There is nothing worse, I think, as a teacher than just sort of steamrollering on through material and leaving people behind and not having an idea. Like sometimes I can tell because your face is given away. Like, like, but sometimes you have good poker faces and I might think you understand everything and you really don't. And so I would far rather you stop me, ask a question. Don't ever feel like a question is too stupid. Uh, chances are if you're thinking it, someone else is thinking it as well. Um, and I am very good at, uh, I, I, my degree was drama and philosophy. Uh, so I'm very good at um, well, hopefully, at communicating and performing, and uh, and also using big words to make people think I've answered a question, even if I hadn't. So, even if you ask a question that's really difficult, uh, I will happily like give an answer that gets me out of it and uh, move on and make you think, oh wow, this guy's clever, even if I haven't answered your question. And hopefully I might answer a few as we go as well. Um, but we do have a lot to cover today. And just so you know, I usually, I often teach two days on the Gospels uh, on a couple of courses. So condensing that down into a couple of hours this morning will be a challenge. We won't cover everything. We'll barely scratch the surface, but I hope it will be an enjoyable scratch nonetheless. Um, But do ask questions. And if if it's something I know we're not going to get time to tackle in depth today, maybe we'll talk during a break or something, but feel free to ask the question and then I'll you know, if I know it's going to take us down a rabbit warren, I'll sort of push it to a break or something like that. But please ask anything. Starting now, uh, I haven't really introduced myself. Ask me something about myself. I never know what's, what's worth knowing about me that will make it, you know, worth you thinking, yeah, I'll listen to this guy for three hours. Like, what would you like to know? What job do you do in the week? What job do I do in the week? Great question. So I was a pastor in London for many years, um, and I've recently started working for an organisation called Bible Society, who produce all sorts of resources, including the Bible course, which I know some of you have used. Uh, And I am writing for some projects for people who have spiritual questions but don't attend church, don't read the Bible, and thinking about how can we help those guys uh, engage with the Bible. There you go. 
where do I live? So I live in Oxford, uh, and I've been there for just over a year. So I was in London for about 12 years, and I moved uh, last year quite unexpectedly. Um, yeah, so enjoying uh, that being closer here. So the drive is shorter to get here, which is wonderful. <laughs> yep. Do you like football? Which football team do you support? Oh, okay. <laughs> the first one is easy to answer. The second one, I feel like that's slightly dangerous answering that. Um, particularly because the exit is there and I've got to go through all of you. There is a fire exit. I'm okay. Uh, yes, I love football and I support Arsenal. Oh. Yay! Yay! Thank you. My friend, wonderful. Help me. If, if, if they turn on me, okay, you, you, you got my back. Great. Wonderful. I'm always slightly, because I've come up here like maybe a couple of times a year for the last probably 12, 14 years. Oh gosh, I feel old. Um, <laughs> but every time I come, I always check the fi fixtures because I really don't want Arsenal to be playing United or City because I know that, well, Tim Simmons particularly will just make my life a misery. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of disappointed, kind of quite relieved there are no matches this weekend. Yeah. Sorry, was there a question over here? One more question, otherwise we'll, we'll get into something way more important. Which church do I go to? Good question. Uh, I go to Oxford Community Church, um, which is part of the Salt and Light network of churches. Um, yeah, so I was part of a New Frontiers church for many years. Christ Church, where I was at London, originally was a New Frontiers church, although it became independent. Uh, so it was very much connected to, to you guys. Moving to Oxford, it was really weird, like trying to be like, oh, how do we choose a church? I didn't really enjoy that, to be honest. <laughs> There's so many great churches, but we ended up settling at this church. It's very, very similar in style and theology and ethos to this. And in fact, Colin Barron is coming to speak at our church uh, at the beginning of next year, which is great. So um, hopefully develop some, some good relationships there. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, enough about me. Let's talk about Jesus, um, which is always a good rule of thumb. Uh, and let's leap into the Gospels. And today we are looking at the Synoptic Gospels, uh, which is well, probably two words worth unpacking. Um, so I want to just begin by asking, what are the Synoptic Gospels? And we'll ask those two words, and we'll start with Gospels and then go to Synoptic. So what are Gospels? Um, what type of books are the Gospels and how does that affect the way that we read them? Uh, we think of the Gospels today as, as being like a genre in itself, but that wasn't the case before these Gospels were written. Rather, the word Gospel, the Greek word euvangelion, it means good news. And it actually had a history before Jesus. So this word, good news, was often used of military or political victories. So people in the ancient world would speak about the Evangelion or the gospel of Caesar or the gospel of Rome. And when Caesar won a battle or defeated someone or other, uh, they would celebrate this great victory, this good news about Caesar or about Rome. So then when the Gospels start, uh, well, in fact, Mark 1, verse 1, it says this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we can often read that and say, oh yeah, that's the beginning of this book known as the Gospel. <laughs> that's not what's going on at all. He's saying this is actually the beginning of the victory or the triumph of Jesus, the Son of God. So Gospel as a genre didn't exist really at this point. It meant victory. It meant celebration. So when we read the Gospels, we are reading books about the good news, the victory, the celebration of Jesus, the Son of God. And of course, they did sort of come to be known as a particular genre of their own. And in fact, people talk about it all the time, you know, the Gospel of whatever, you know, the ones in the Bible. But also we use this idea of the Gospel as if it is some kind of like recognised text. It's, it's taken on a life of its own, but that's not how it originally was thought of. 
There was an ancient type of literature called a bios, or a biography. And this, I think, is closest to what we have when we look at the Gospels today. So in the second... Oh, I'm on page two of the notes, by the way, if you have the notes. Um, in the second column here. There were this, um, these type of Greco-Roman biographies uh, that followed the lives of key individuals. And that seems to be the type of literature that the Gospels are, um, are written in. And they generally followed a similar sort of structure, which is basically the same as our Gospels. It started by looking at the birth of a particular individual. It ended by looking at their death. And very often, it would spend a long time looking at the death of whatever individual the biography was about. For the reason that uh, ancient people believed that the way you died oh, great, uh, told a lot about the way you lived. Uh, and so if someone died in glory or they died uh, in a particular battle or they died in a heroic way, they would want to celebrate that death because it told you something of the character of the man. Now the Gospels do something similar with Jesus. They start with the birth, they spend a lot of time on the death, but they do something quite subversive, I think, with the death of Jesus, which um, we can talk about in a minute. But in between the birth, or the, uh, the birth and the death, you have the life of the individual. And often you would get collections of sayings or things that they did, and they would generally be historical accounts, but they were not expected to all go in the right order chronologically. Today, we often, I, I, I think we have this sort of modern Western obsession with chronology. Uh, if we tell the story of someone's life, we expect it to go exactly in the right order that it happened, and we get worried if something's out of order. That didn't really exist in the same sort of way in the ancient world. With these biographies, they were truthful in that they told genuine accounts from this person's life, but they didn't mind if they got in the wrong... I mean, obviously, you didn't have death and then birth over here, or like he was 30 years older than five years old. Like, that would have made no sense. But what I am saying is, within this genre, they felt a freedom to move the events around in order to help the reader uh, see a particular point. They would often group things together, whether or not they happened in the same period of time, in order to help you to understand the significance of a number of events within this person's life. So whilst these biographies are historical documents, they are not expected to be strictly chronological in order, but are often arranged thematically in order to emphasise the overall thrust and focus of an individual's life and work. And it's worth bearing that in mind. Because when we come to the Gospels, we need to remember that they are historically faithful, but they are deliberately arranged to show how Jesus' life is the longed-for victory that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And the chronology of it may sometimes be a little bit different, and actually we'll see between the Gospels is a little bit different. But that is okay. That's how this genre worked. So taking these two ideas of good news and the ancient sort of Greco-Roman biographies, they were fused together to create this new genre, which we now call gospel, probably, well, scholars might call it a Christological biography, which is, it's an ancient biography, but particularly about the person known as the Christ, Jesus, the one about whom the good news is being expressed. So the Gospels are the good news expressed in the life of Christ Jesus. And they were written for a particular purpose. Not just to kind of document this guy's life so he isn't forgotten, but rather to actually compel people to believe in him. So in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 20, he says this, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So they're not just nice biographies so that you think, oh great, I'm glad that guy existed. They actually compel us to believe certain things about us, about him, so that we then receive the life that he came to give. Does that make sense? Yeah. Great. So what are Gospels? They are Christological biographies. So they are biographies about Jesus. They are historically faithful, but they're deliberately arranged for a particular purpose. And there's loads we could talk about about how they're written, but maybe that's a bit geeky, so we'll skip on. Well, actually, let's skip to the next slide, because I think actually Luke gives us a very good answer about how the Gospels were written. So page three. I really should put page numbers on my notes, shouldn't I? <laughs> that would be really helpful. Note yourself. Do that. How were the Gospels written? Well, Luke, in, in chapter one, he explains his own process. So I wonder if someone would read for us Luke 1, 1 to 4. They're there on your notes if you have it, or feel free. It's hopefully in your Bible as well, but, <laughs> but the notes make it quicker. Would someone read those verses for us? Those ones in the middle. Any volunteer? Yes, thank you. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, great, thank you. So Luke here, in this beginning, I mean, it's a slightly weird, wordy way to start your gospel, um, but he actually explains something of how he has put this book together. He tells us that many eyewitnesses, verse 2, orally, verbally communicated the stories about Jesus, which were then written and compiled by various people. Luke researched these over quite some time and wrote his own account, which was arranged for a particular purpose and sent to its intended recipient. So it's... He had designed this account deliberately to write to a particular person and there are debates over whether Theophilus was a particular person or, well, we don't need to get into that. Uh, whoever's doing Acts can maybe talk about that. Um, but he had a particular goal in mind and he listened to all these sources and he read these different sources and he probably interviewed people and he drew it together on the basis of his research, which tells us that Luke believes his gospel is historically accurate based on multiple sources, including many eyewitnesses and written to convince a particular person of who Jesus was. And if, I don't know if any of you have, have any of you studied theology sort of academically or are you doing it? No, I mean, no judgment. Either way, <laughs> um, it's not, yeah, a couple. Okay, so you may have like, looked at uh, things like source criticism, redaction criticism, all these different ways of trying to ascertain exactly what sources were people drawing from. And I think sometimes people get a bit agitated about the idea that the, the gospel writers drew from different sources. I mean, Luke just tells us he did it here. He drew from loads of different sources. He spoke to loads of different eyewitnesses. Uh, and I don't think we should worry about that. Actually, for me, that's quite compelling. It tells me that this is historically accurate because it was drawing from many different voices, putting it together into one account. But if you've got questions about that, I'm happy to talk about it, but it's a bit boring, so we won't talk about it now. <laughs> but what are Gospels? They are historically reliable documents put together for a particular reason to compel you to believe in who Jesus claimed to be. But what about the word synoptic? Well, next page uh, of the slides. Scholars often talk about synoptic Gospels, and by that they mean Matthew, Mark and Luke, so not John's Gospel. 
And the word synoptic, it breaks down into two parts. Sin, uh, not meaning like naughty stuff, but meaning together, um, sin with a Y, and optic, meaning view. So synoptic essentially means a together view (laughs) or a shared vision. So when we talk about the synoptic gospels, we're talking about three gospels that share a particular vision of who Jesus is and probably actually share similar sources as well. And so John's gospel is slightly different, but someone, is it you doing John next term? Wonderful. Uh, Tom will answer all your questions about John. I'll give you some more to ask him because I've got loads of questions about John. Um, But you'll look at that next month, I think. So these are three Gospels that share a similar um, perspective on Jesus. And this is the geekiest slide of the day. Don't worry, it will get far less geeky than this. Um, but this just shows you some, how the content uh, is shared between the three Gospels. And if I can just sort of summarise some key points on this, this shows us that 76% of Mark's Gospel also appears in Matthew and Luke. It's actually a huge amount and can't be a coincidence. The, the hypothesis tends to be that Mark's gospel was written first and that both Matthew and Luke drew upon Mark's account and probably others as well to write their own accounts. So when Luke talks about many eyewitnesses and different sources, I think he probably includes Mark in that. And 76% of Mark is in the other two gospels. Uh, and if you're at all familiar with academic theology and what they call textual criticism. People talk about this other source called Q, uh, drawn from the German word quell, uh, which means source, and they talk about this sort of mystical other source that all the gospel writers drew from, and they try and reconstruct what it might have been like, and, uh, and, and people have written huge books on it, and like we've never found this source. Um, but like, yeah, I'm sure there was a Q and an R and an S and a T and a U and a V. And like, because Luke tells us there were loads of sources. Uh, loads of people were telling and recording stories about Jesus. So I don't think that should bother us. These people were drawing together the best material from various sources, most of which came from eyewitnesses. And so the theory is probably that Mark was written first, maybe mid to late 50s. Um, Matthew and Luke were probably written next, probably Matthew first, uh, late 50s, early 60s. Um, Luke a little bit later in the 60s, uh, and Acts was the sequel. Uh, And then John a bit later, somewhere between 70 and 100. Uh, but you can ask Tom for his opinion on that next, next month. Um, so the Synoptic Gospels are three accounts that share a similar view of Jesus. And there are plenty of differences between them. And we're going to unpack what some of those differences are. Um, but if you turn to the next slide, we're not going to go through this now, but just in case you're interested, you can see some key events in the life of Jesus and where they are depicted in, um, in the different Gospels. And if we were to go through them, you could see there are some slight differences. Some differences in placement, where they come in the story of Jesus, some differences in what happened before, what happened after, what else these things are grouped with. Uh, and it's interesting to compare them, but we're not going to do that now. Um, I just want to touch on this question before we leap into the Gospels, which is why are there differences? Um, If these people shared a vision of Jesus, why didn't they write basically the same account? And I think firstly, that would have been quite boring. (laughs) Uh, But secondly, they they realised that they didn't just need a duplicate. They each felt, each of the Gospel writers felt they were bringing something significant and different to their telling of the life of Jesus. So I think two reasons why there are differences between the accounts. The first is that the authors were selective. That is, they had vast amounts of material to draw from, from the life of Jesus. And they selected the bits to keep in, recognising that there were other bits they weren't able to keep. John actually tells us this in John 20. 
He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John admits, like, I haven't given you a full picture of Jesus' life. That would be impossible to do. I've been selective. So actually, he's chosen sort of, you know, top seven <laughs> things from Jesus' life. The, the gospel writers knew they were only picking highlights, as it were. But not only were they selective, they were also creative. That is, not only did they just select the material that was helpful for them, but they arranged it creatively in order to draw out particular things that they believed were important for their readers to know. And so in some accounts, you get miracles grouped together in a way that they're not in other accounts. Sometimes you have a teaching and then a miracle, whereas then in another account, it's a miracle followed by another miracle and another miracle. And you think, well, which happened in which order actually i don't think they were quite concerned about the order all those things happened and the particular authors put them together in order to help you understand something significant about jesus sometimes teaching is put next to a miracle to make the point in two different ways uh, sometimes miracles are grouped together to give you a sense of the sheer number of them and that kind of overwhelming power of what jesus was able to do and sometimes things that are largely the same are just slightly tweaked or put in a slightly different order in order to help you understand something significant that the author wants us to know so um could someone read for us Matthew 4, 5 to 10, and someone else, if you could get your finger into Luke 4, uh, 5 to 13. And uh, these are two accounts of the same thing. Uh, could, actually, could someone over this side take responsibility for Matthew 4, someone over this side take responsibility for Luke 4. And I just want you to hear um, what is different about these two accounts. So, could someone read Matthew 4, 5 to 10? Wonderful, thank you. <coughs> Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels to stand in you, and then he will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God. <coughs> to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down to me and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Fantastic. Thank you. Great. Bear that in mind. Uh, Luke chapter 4. Could someone read uh, verses, which one did I say, 5 to 13? <clears throat> then the devil, setting him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
draw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from and he departed from him until an opportunity time. Fantastic. So essentially the same account, right? We don't think that this happened twice. Um, sometimes that is the case in the Gospels. Things happen twice and that's why we've got different accounts. But this probably happened once, right? And it seems like they're largely the same. But there are some slight differences between them. What, what is the major difference? It's kind of all interwoven, so it's maybe not super clear, but... The order. The order's reversed, yeah. Which, for modern readers, like, can cause us a problem. And lots of people will say, ah, oh, this is a contradiction in the Gospels. It's not really, is it? Like, the, the, the content is the same, it's just in a slightly different order. And you've got to ask why. And um, we won't necessarily be able to answer why, because <laughs> we're going to look at the different agendas of the Gospel writers in a moment. But uh, I can give you a bit of the answer, which is that in Luke's Gospel, Jerusalem and the Temple play a massive role. Actually, most of Luke's Gospel is all based around Jerusalem and the Temple. And so, in this account of the temptation of Jesus, Luke um, sort of brings that to the climax uh, of the story. Whereas in Matthew's Gospel, a central theme is the kingdom, and so it makes sense for in Matthew's telling of the story, for the challenge about the kingdom to be the pinnacle of the devil's temptation. So both of them are faithfully recording the content and the meaning of it, but they are just arranging it slightly because Luke knows, well, I'm going to go on to make lots of big points about the, the, the temple and Jerusalem, so I'm going to put that as the pinnacle of the temptation. And Matthew does the same with the kingdom. So both faithful, I would say, but both creatively arranged in order to make a particular point. Now, maybe that's slightly an abstract point because we haven't actually looked at the agendas of the gospel writers, um, but I think it's a good sort of illustration. So, just to summarise all of that, and then we'll actually get into the Gospels, and I'll get you looking at some passages and doing some group work, so I can stop talking um, and go and eat some Haribo. So, um, the, I would put it to you that each of the authors has made artistic decisions about the way they arrange the material in the Gospels, because they want to emphasise something particular about Jesus' life, death and resurrection. To be really clear, I am not saying that the Gospel writers had an agenda and made stuff up. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that they looked at all this source material and they thought, what is the best order to put this in in order to help the, the reader get to the conclusion that other people have already got about who Jesus is? So they are creatively arranging this, almost like a, a documentary maker will do the same today, uh, or a filmmaker. And so some material falls away, some material gets rearranged, some material you thought would go there, actually when you're creating it goes there. It's all faithful, it's all real, it's not made up, but it's artistically put together to draw us to a particular conclusion. Yes? Yes, please. So do you think it was man's will or God's will to do that thing? Good question. Well, both. <laughs> but, I mean, think about the way that Luke 
put it. Luke didn't say at any point, um, so I gathered all this material and then God told me what order to put it in. <laughs> what he says is, I gathered all this material and I arranged it this particular way. And John's gospel, it seems like really deliberately designed around um, a set number of days and signs and sayings. And it seems like he has really thought about it and constructed it in a particular way. And you don't, like, at no point do the, the authors say, well, God told me or God gave me this blueprint. So I think it was largely human. But in their human choices, they were reflecting the will of God. So I think their inspiration was coming from God. He was prompting them, but without saying, now do it like this or put this bit there. Yeah. So I want to hold both of those things together because uh, I believe that the word, this is the word of God. Uh, but I believe very much that it was written by human authors who brought their own uh, perspectives and desires and creative skills to it. Yeah. So both, I would say. Yeah. Okay, should we jump into the Gospels? Should we have a look at some of them? Wonderful. How are we doing for time? <clears throat> okay, great. Not bored yet? Actually, don't answer that. <laughs> Tom's like, yes, I'm very bored. Uh, you've heard this many times, so you probably are. Um, <clears throat> okay, well, what I want to do then is I want us to leap into the Gospels. And clearly, like, we're not going to get through all of them today because uh, I've only been given 11 hours to speak to you. So um, that's, a, <laughs> that's a joke. It's <laughs> a joke. Um, uh, but what I do want to do is I want to give you a little flavour for what each of the Gospel writers was trying to do um, so that when you you go back and read them if you read them through the lens of what I, I think they're trying to do you'll spot things that you've never spotted before so we won't draw out every theme like I say I'm happy to take questions about anything but what I want to do is I want to look at each of the gospels in turn and ask two questions which are these according to this gospel writer who is the Christ um, Jesus like there's no doubt about that um, but how is he portraying how is this gospel writer portraying the significance of who Jesus is uh, so who is the Christ and then what is the crisis uh, by which I mean what is the the problem that this Jesus has come to sort and there's a link between the two um, so who is the Christ what is the crisis um, how are we meant to think about who Jesus is and what is it that Jesus has come to achieve? And we'll see that each of the gospel writers, they cross over plenty, but they do have particular distinct um, ideas in mind. So the way we're going to do this is we're going to break into three groups. And uh, let me see the best way to do this. So, um, I don't know, really. Um, Okay, what I suggest is, actually, given the number of people, um, my suggestion is you just work with the people on your table, um, but clearly we have more than three tables. So uh, what I will do is I'll say, I'd like you guys to be Matthew groups. Yeah, probably just the two of you be Matthew groups, but don't work together as one big group. Um, Mark groups. This is absurd. You're way too... You can be a Mark group as well, if you'd like. Um, so Mark groups, you three at the back, and then you three can be Luke groups. And I'm going to give you each an exercise, and um, the exercise will help you to answer this question. Who is the Christ, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke? And what is the particular crisis? So, <clears throat> in your notes, which don't have page numbers, so I can't tell you what page numbers they're on, um, Matthew group, you are going to look at these verses that are in Exodus uh, and in Matthew, and I want you to draw draw out particular similarities or differences between them. Uh, I mean, I've given you passages from Exodus, like I've sort of given you a big clue there. Um, but look through them and try and work out what is the significance of the comparison between the two. Uh, for two, three pages, in fact, um, Mark group, I've given you three 
blocks of, that's the one, uh, three blocks of uh, passages. And I want you to answer this question, whose son is the Christ? Uh, so look at some of these references. To be honest, once you've looked at the first one, you'll have the answer, because uh, all the other references there are the same sort of thing. But ask, what is the title? Um, by whom is it given? So who uses that title of Jesus? And what is the significance? And there are some Old Testament passages you might want to look at to try and unpack that. Luke group, uh, you are two pages on from there. <clears throat> and you've got this uh, funny little thing here with some gaps. Good, I'm glad I gave you the version with the gaps. <laughs> Otherwise I would have given away all the answers. And I want you to kind of look at some of these passages and try and draw out what are the comparisons between these Old Testament passages and the passages in Luke. Um, some of them are quite long, so don't worry about them. Skim them quite quickly. Don't overthink any of this. This is like to all you groups. Don't overthink it. Uh, I'm after quite simple answers here. Um, does that make sense? Do you know what you're doing? <laughs> you're glad I'm after simple answers. <laughs> Jesus is the answer. Well, sort of, yeah. Okay, everyone know what you're doing? Let's give you... I'll check in in 10 minutes and see how you're doing. Uh, you may need a little bit longer than that. Okay, let's, um, let's come back together again. I'm aware some of you probably haven't finished those. Um, some of you had slightly larger tasks than others, including the guys over here who had one section, which is read from Malachi to Luke. So um, they probably... How, you nearly finished. Wonderful. Great. Uh, <laughs> um, great. Okay. So, like I said, don't overthink this. Um, and we're going to walk through it together. And what... I hope there were some things that you noticed, um, but I'll sort of like, I'll, I'll walk us through and I'll draw some things out from you and I'll add in some thoughts. And what we will do basically over the end of this session, and then I think we'll probably try and take a break. Probably we'll, we'll do Matthew and then we'll take a break for coffee and stuff. And then we'll come back, we'll do Mark and Luke, uh, and then we'll move on to the kingdom. Um, and what I'd like us to do is just kind of look through some of the things that you've discovered looking at these exercises. I'll add in a few other bits of detail and we'll try and answer the questions for each. Who is the Christ uh, and, and what is the crisis? And of course, bear in mind, as I ask you to share things that you've discovered, uh, not everyone else would have read the passages. So, um, so try and sort of give an idea that will make sense to people who haven't read the same passages you have, if you see what I mean. Um, but let's start with Matthew. Let me give you a couple of background bits of information about Matthew, uh, which may help, um, but also yeah, may make more sense once we've heard bits from the, uh, the exercise as well. So Matthew is often described as the most Jewish gospel uh, because of his attention to detail about Jewish customs, his focus on ethics and the law, uh, his criticism of the Jewish leaders, and his regular reference to Old Testament scriptures. Which, of course, is not to say that none of those other things exist in the other gospels, but I think they are particularly prominent and strong in Matthew's account. Um, it may have been written to Jewish Christians or Christians living in areas with large Jewish populations, uh, perhaps Syria or Palestine, uh, helping them to see Jesus as the fulfilment of the Old Testament and giving them as a, an, an ethical framework for how to live as kingdom people. And so a lot of Matthew's gospel is actually given over to large blocks of teaching, more so than in the other gospels. Uh, and there's lots we can say about that, but I will give away uh, too much if I carry on. So, um, Matthew groups, which were, it was the front two tables. That's right, isn't it? You were Mark, yeah? 
Uh, yeah, great, wonderful. I forgot my own system. Uh, great. So I wonder, um, would you guys talk through? Uh, let's let's go through the boxes first of all and tell us what you've noticed uh, as being similar or different in each of those accounts, and then we'll sum it up uh, and answer the two main questions. So, who would like to share on the first? What was the first thing you discovered? <coughs> <coughs> Baby boys and um, being killed, although the difference is that in the Exodus one, they aren't, well, the midwives who are meant to kill them don't carry out the yeah. killing, whereas in Matthew they yeah. Okay, great. So the, the similarity is that there is. Um, that there are infants being born, uh, being born and then being slaughtered, or there's the decree for them to be slaughtered at least. Uh, there's a difference in whether that actually happens in a widespread sense. But actually what's similar, and that's a really important thing to note, um, in both stories though, there is a particular child who doesn't get slaughtered, right? Um, in Exodus, it's through the intervention of the midwives, who, yeah, yeah. I, well, no, that's fine. I'm not teaching on Exodus today, so <laughs> I'll hold that thought. But, um, uh, but in, in the Gospel accounts, yeah, Jesus avoids this king who is intent on slaughtering children. Yeah, great, wonderful. Uh, someone likes to talk us through the next two texts. Great. Yeah. So if you didn't hear that, so um, uh, in both accounts there is uh, there is a child or a person rather uh, fleeing for their life and having to live in a foreign land. Yeah. Um, and Egypt features in both, but in the reverse role. So yeah, Moses flees from Egypt. Jesus actually goes to Egypt, which is interesting. Um, we won't have time to get into that rabbit warren, but yes, yeah, fascinating. Okay, great. Um, I imagine you're seeing a picture sort of starting to build up already. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, box three. Someone talk to us about that. Okay, so there's the death of Pharaoh and the death of Herod. And what happens to the person who's fled? They return. Okay, so in both cases, the person returns after the death of the particular um, murderous royal. Yeah, great. Um, Exodus 4 and uh, Matthew 3. What's similar in those texts? Great. Okay, brilliant. So that is crucial for understanding Matthew's gospel. And we won't dig into this too much because I don't have time. But, um, but actually, the idea of Israel was called the Son of God in Exodus. Uh, and if you were here last year, I taught a day on Exodus, and that was one of the big themes, actually, about God calling his son out, uh, out of Egypt for himself. Uh, but here, Jesus gets the title that was previously given to Israel, Son of God. Bear that in mind, particularly Mark, guys. Uh, that may be firing some thoughts over there. Okay, great. Um, uh, Deuteronomy 8 and uh, Matthew 4. What's going on in those passages? <laughs> Wow, it's like, it's like, who wants to be a millionaire? It's like, phone a friend. Uh, 
Uh, cool, New Testament scholar or whoever. Oh, Matthew himself. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, no, feel free to get that. Um, actually, one of the things I loved about the, um, uh, you know, all the stories coming out about the Queen, apparently she used to have this joke where uh, if someone's phone went off in her presence, she would say, oh, don't worry, you should get that. It might be someone really important, which I just <laughs> thought was, was brilliant. Uh, and I always said the same there, but it wouldn't have carried anywhere near the same level as weight. Like, yeah, it's quite feasible. It was someone more important than you, Liam. <laughs> Uh, no one would disagree with that. But anyway, um, don't worry at all. Uh, sorry for drawing attention to that. Um, not that no one noticed. But there we go. Okay, great. Deuteronomy 8, 2 and Matthew 4, 1 to 2. What's going on in those passages? Deuteronomy is about the building to the wilderness and then Matthew 4 is about um, Jesus. Great. Okay, so both about testing in the wilderness. Anything else significant about those two? 40. 40. 40 years and 40 days. Great. So 40 years for Israel, 40 days. So taken by God yeah, 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 interesting. Yeah, so taken by God into the wilderness for a period of testing which lasts for a period of 40 somethings. Uh, yeah, great. Um, fantastic. And the final one, Exodus 19 and Matthew 5. What's the link between those? Um, Moses goes to the mountain and Jesus does, and then, well, Moses receives teaching from God and Jesus does. Yeah. Teaching. Okay, so you've got teaching on a mountaintop in both accounts, um, and that's, that's a really fascinating connection, isn't it? So Moses receives the teaching from on high and gives it to the people. Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. <laughs> so it's not just a mediated teaching, it's teaching directly from the one who has authority. Uh, but there is a, a similarity, I think, there between uh, the two in terms of delivering this teaching. Great. So putting all of that together, who is the Christ? Who does Matthew want us to see Jesus as being like? Moses. Moses, yeah. Yeah, he's a new Moses. And in fact, the Old Testament prophesied there would be a prophet like Moses who comes. And Matthew's like, guys, it's this guy. And actually the whole structure of his gospel points this out. Five blocks of teaching. It's, like, it's just like the Torah. It's all structured to make us realise that Jesus is the new Moses. So with that in mind, what is the crisis? And this is not sort of explicit in there, but think about what, what the crisis was for Moses and uh, what might a similarity be uh, for Matthew's portelling uh, of, of Jesus. One thing is that they were both persecuted by the authorities of the world which were threatened yeah. by, the, by these new kings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, in both cases it's, it's an oppressed, the people of God are oppressed um, uh, there is a, a foreign power ruling over them. Uh, they are, in a sense, in exile. They're not enjoying the freedom that God had for them. Yeah. And I think on top of that as well, just to draw out your point about the teaching, um, they're people who needed instruction about how to live. And so uh, I think Jesus is portrayed as the one who comes to a people in exile to bring them a new exodus and to give them a new way of living yeah and the whole of matthew's gospel makes this point and there's loads that we could dig into to to show you that uh, but let me just show you how the gospel ends and i think this makes the point quite compellingly um so turn to the next slide in fact i'll just oh thanks <laughs> i will try and do it so we have two passages here Deuteronomy 31 and Matthew 28 so the end of uh, the Matthew story and the end of the Moses story and what I want us to do is uh, could two people read out those passages for us and I want you to be listening and spot any similarities or any differences between those passages so start could someone read Deuteronomy 31 2 to 8 
The Lord said to me, You shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you, so that you shall dispossess them, and Joshua will go over at your head, as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sarah and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land, when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Fantastic. Thank you. So the end of Deuteronomy, this final rousing speech uh, of Moses. Could someone read Matthew 28, 16 to 20? <coughs> now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted him. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Fantastic. So, comparing these two speeches, what do we notice? What are the similarities between them? Doesn't have to be just the Matthew group, anyone sort of throughout. It's like a summoning <coughs> of a, a kind of ascending into a land to, to retake, to take yeah. possession of it because of God's authority. Great. Fantastic. Okay, so there's a lot, lot in that sentence. That's brilliant. So there's a, a, like a, a, a gathering together and a commissioning and ascending people into the land. Let's sort of tease that out a little bit. Um, what's the land in Deuteronomy? <clears throat> what, what land are we talking about here? Yep, yeah, okay. What are we talking about in Matthew 28? The world. Okay, so there's this broadening of this commission as well. So uh, Israel was sent into one particular land. Now the disciples are sent into the entire world. The whole earth is God's mission field. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, there's a commission in both. Yeah, great. Um, where does the commission take place? mountain yeah in both cases there's this mountaintop commission so it's like go down from this mountain to the world and that again i'm not teaching on genesis but i think that takes us right back to the garden of eden which is there on a mountaintop and this idea of go down and fill the earth with the glory of god i think it's tying together all these different ideas um yeah so go to the land uh, what did it, what does he actually tell them to in each passage what do they tell them to do with the land <coughs> What was the sense of what they're meant to do with the land? 
possession yeah. and push out the other people over Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what we're meant to do as Christians, right? No, no, we're not. <laughs> no, that's what it is in Deuteronomy, isn't it? It's like take possession of the land. What, what are the apostles told to do? Sorry, I c- make disciples. Yeah, so there's a very there's a real difference here. It's not a warfare. It's an actual like like proclaim the victory, not in a way that defeats others, but in a way that welcomes them into the kingdom. That's a fundamental change of the commission. Yeah. Yeah, a gathering, bringing people in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, any other sort of things that you're spotting there? God is always with them. Yeah, yeah. So that same phrase is used in both about God will not leave you or forsake you. Yeah, I think it's a deliberate reference point. Yeah. The Lord himself will go before you. God will never leave you. Yeah, in, in Deuteronomy they said, do all that I command. Uh, Matthew says, teach everyone to do what I command. So there's this like sharing of it. It's not simply just do it yourself, <laughs> uh, but actually in, catch other people up in this new way of living. Yeah, absolutely. It's also God will be with you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, brilliant. So it's not just, oh, Jesus saying, oh, by the way, God will be with you. I will be with you, which is just incredible, isn't it? Just before he ascends into heaven. Yeah. Uh, and on that, um, who else is mentioned in Deuteronomy 31? Who's going to go over with them? Joshua. Joshua. Yeah. Do you know what Jesus' name was? Yeshua. Joshua. God of salvation. <laughs> so literally this... This Yeshua, this new Yeshua is saying, I'm going to go with you. Um, not in a way that replaces God, but I'm actually sort of am God. It's not me instead of God. It's like God is going with you and I'm going with you. And together he is the new Joshua. He is the new, um, yeah, he's going, going with his people. So what I hope that, I mean, clearly we've not looked at much of Matthew's gospel at all. <laughs> but what I hope that shows you, and there are plenty of other things, I haven't just picked two bits and there's nothing else like the whole of Matthew's gospel is structured in this way to lead us to this conclusion that Jesus is the promised prophet like Moses and he has come to commission his people like Israel was commissioned to go into all the world with this message of of, of restoration of reconciliation of return from exile new life a new way of living that is beautiful and fruitful and brings the blessing of God and and he redefines things such as the nation, the nation or the nations are no longer to be seen as enemies, but rather people to be welcomed into this kingdom. And he promises to go with them but by his own divine presence. I think it's beautiful. He's tying together all these different themes. According to Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses come to lead his people in the new Exodus. Isn't that beautiful? Now, I reckon if you were to go back and read Matthew's gospel now, asking yourself... Are there any hints of Moses here? You would find them everywhere. (laughs) You would find them in the way that it's structured. Five blocks of teaching. What does that remind us of? Oh, five books of the Torah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You would find certain things where Jesus is regularly referring back to the law of Moses and saying, well, this was given to you and you've interpreted it a particular way, but I give you a more authoritative command. Uh, Time and time again, uh, Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the new Moses. Okay. Coffee looks like it's ready, so we will take a break. But any questions on that before we do? No. Okay, let's take a 15-minute break. We'll start back at 10.30. 17 minutes. I'm so generous. Uh, and then we'll go on to, Math, uh, to Mark and Luke. Okay. 
Is this making sense so far? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> some people say yes, some people stay quiet, some people just laugh. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a yes. Um, any questions on any of that so far? Otherwise, we're going to leap into Mark and Luke. No? Great. Wonderful. Um, out of interest, just a straw poll. Um, and we'll add John into this as well. If you had to pick, like, what's your favourite gospel? Um, just think about that for a moment. Which would you choose? Okay, this isn't going to work. Uh, hands up if you, you think Matthew. Oh, what's wrong with Matthew, guys? <laughs> right. Fantastic. Uh, that's really interesting, isn't it? So that is fascinating, isn't it? The fact that, like, historically people have said Matthew is a Jewish gospel um, written probably for Jewish people, and it's amazing that it still has that effect today. It still connects with people. Yeah, wonderful. Great. Okay, who would say Mark is their favourite gospel? All right, be honest, that just because it's the shortest, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's always fun. Like, we will look at Mark in a second. People often say, you know, if someone is a new believer or they want to read the gospels for the first time, people often recommend Mark because it's the shortest. I think it's the weirdest. Yeah. It's pretty intense. I don't. Uh, I recommend Luke as the starting point because then Luke and Acts come together. You get quite a lot personally. But who would say Luke is their favourite? All right, a good number. Uh, why, why would that be? Christmas story. Christmas story. You like the Christmas story? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's there in Matthew as well, but a little less brutal, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually thankful Luke was what was my O level in uh, RE. Mm. It's just like, wow, well, the get now, but yeah. I had Luke. Oh, amazing. My Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, and who would say John is their favourite? Okay. Sorry, guys, that's next month. But <laughs> uh, why, why would you say John is your favourite? There was a hand over here. Who, I can't remember who it was. Someone. Oh, you, you, the guy with the mouthful. <laughs> that's mean. <laughs> say it, don't spray it. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. And I think... Mm. Right, yeah, there's some real sort of personal moments in there, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Tom will, will unpack this next week, but I, next month, but I think you'll look at the Trinity, actually, and like, John goes pretty deep <laughs> with some stuff about who Jesus was and makes some radical claims, and yeah. And it's just intensely structured and really well thought through, yeah. Great. I don't know what I would say my favourite is. I think probably John, but with a soft spot for Luke and Matthew and Mark. But I think <laughs> not that you want to rank them, but like I think just we resonate with different ones in different seasons, I think. And actually, in a sense, knowing what the gospel writers are trying to do is quite helpful because I know if oh, I don't want to give the game away, but like if there's a season where I just really need to know the comforting presence of Jesus, I might turn to Luke. Uh, if I really need to know the victory of Jesus, I might turn to Mark. If I just want to be blown away by Jesus again, I read John and I forgot nothing else to read. I read Matthew. No, I love Matthew as well. But if I want to really get into the teaching uh, of Jesus, then I go to Matthew. So just knowing that actually it's really helpful. Yeah, great. Anyway, that was a, a sidebar. But let's leap into Mark. So that was you two tables there, right? And you guys at the back. Um, so let me just say a couple of comments about Mark and then we'll leap in. Um, so Mark was probably the first of the accounts to be written. Um, it was written to Gentiles, uh, so non-Jewish people. 
And we can tell this by the fact that he often translates Aramaic phrases and he explains Jewish customs, like hand-washing, which gives us the hint that he thinks that his readers don't know those customs uh, weren't Jewish people. Uh, Mark was not an eyewitness, uh, although we were just talking about that. There is a theory that there's a moment uh, where in the Garden of Gethsemane there's this character who just sort of appears and then runs away and it's like, what on earth is that? And some people say, well, maybe that was Mark. Um, uh, We don't know. Chances are he wasn't an eyewitness to most of Jesus' life. Um, But traditionally he was thought of as being Peter's interpreter. That is, he was a good friend of Peter. We know that from 1 Peter uh, 5. Peter actually calls him my son, uh, not literally, but like there's a close relationship there. And if you compare, and we won't go through this, but if you compare Acts 10, Peter's proclamation with the gospel according to Luke, um, it actually really corresponds with the whole structure of Mark's gospel. Um, and so I, I think a very good theory, um, and actually the church fathers essentially say this, uh, that he was P- Peter's interpreter. He wrote Peter's account on his behalf, probably with Peter's involvement as well. So when we're reading Mark, we're kind of reading Peter at the same time, uh, which is helpful when you think about the connection to an eyewitness. This, this was someone who was right there um, alongside Jesus, and his account is passed down to us through Mark. So let us dig into Mark a little bit. Um, <clears throat> So I've given you three blocks of uh, references in Mark, which are to do with titles that are given to Jesus. And for each of them, I've asked you to say, what's the title? By whom is it given? So who uses that title? And what is the significance with the sort of Old Testament hint in there? Um, And we'll go through this quite quickly. Let's start with the first box from the Mark groups. Who would like to unpack those? Maybe the easiest way is just to go through those questions. Um, What's the title? in this column over here. Son of God. God. Okay, so this is a phrase that is used to describe Jesus. He is the Son of God. Um, Who uses that phrase of him? Who calls him the Son of God? Sorry? They're quite disparate, aren't they? So there's um, Isaiah, there was uh, the evil spirits, and there's also the centurion. Yeah, so there's the quote from Isaiah. Absolutely. Um, And one other as well, actually, the very first one, Mark 1.1. Mark, Mark himself uses the title. Yeah, yeah. So, so you got Mark, you got evil spirits, and you got centurion. That's interesting. What, what's, what holds those three together? It's quite an abstract point, so don't worry. But they're all kind of outsiders, aren't they? Like, so Mark, Gentile, evil spirits, <laughs> centurion, Roman centurion. And yet, all of those three use this title, Son of God, which is interesting. Um, what's the significance of that title, Son of God? I don't know if you had a chance to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, did any of you have a chance to look at that text? Otherwise, I'll happily summarise it for you, because this, this, is, this is a text worth... like You know, there's a handful of texts worth really knowing in the Bible. Um, 2 Samuel 7 is a really crucial one. This was a prophecy given uh, to David about his future line, uh, saying that from you will come essentially a one like you, a son, uh, and his kingdom will never end. Um, and so, and God says, actually, I will be to him like a father and he will be to me like a son. So hold all of that in your mind. This is one of the key prophecies about the coming Messiah, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in that is this idea that the father says, I will be like a father to him and he will be my son. So the idea of son of God comes from there. So the Messiah is the Son of God. So when we hear the phrase Son of God, 
Uh, often we think second person of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Actually, the word, the phrase Son of God, it refers back to that. It just means the Messiah, the anointed King, the one coming from David's line. To be clear, I think Jesus is God. But my point is, like, we hear that and we go, oh, that's a sign of divinity. Actually, the way people heard it was, oh, he is the Messiah. He is the one to come from David's line. Hold that in your mind. Great. Next, um, next block of references. What's the title in this middle column? <clears throat> What's the title there? Son of Man. Yep. Great. Um, you can see this features far more than the others. Son of Man is a very frequent title in Mark's Gospel. Who uses it? Jesus. Does anyone else apart from Jesus use it? I don't think so. I've just asked that question, but I realise I don't know the answer. I don't think so. I think, I think Jesus exclusively uses it of himself. Uh, yeah, which is fascinating. Um, so Jesus' own description for himself in Mark's Gospel is that he is the Son of Man. Now, um, in Ezekiel, this phrase comes up quite a lot. So I've just... I'm, I, I've got a commute now from my new job and I'm listening to the audio Bible uh, for the Old Testament. I'm in Ezekiel at the moment, which means I get to work pretty miserable. <laughs> but I've just got through Jeremiah and Lamentations. So Ezekiel, weirdly enough, is a bit of a pick-me-up. Um, <laughs> although this week I was reading the section about baking bread on human dung, which is just not, not great, especially as I'm a sourdough baker. Uh, so I didn't enjoy that. And also Ezekiel was told to shave off his beard and like throw it into the wind. So I, I was pretty miserable this week reading Ezekiel. But one of the things that comes through again and again and again in Ezekiel is this phrase, son of man. And so God often uses it to refer to Ezekiel, actually. Um, and essentially what it just means is human being. Like, you son of man, not son of the gods or son of... Any, like, you're just a human being. And that seems to be what it meant in Ezekiel. Uh, and so in a sense, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm a human. Um, but maybe the human, the son of man, like the perfect human as it were and through the old testament this phrase which did just mean sort of a human being actually began to to be read as a messianic title so you get to daniel chapter 7 and you've got this um this strange scene where essentially these beasts are waging war against god's people um and there's the ancient of days in this courtroom and he's sitting there on a throne and we're told that the son of man approaches him um and, uh, no, that's irrelevant. I'll leave that because I'll take us down a rabbit warren. But essentially, this son of man is a human being who approaches God on behalf of Israel. So the beasts represent different nations, and this son of man is a human representing Israel. In essence, he is a messiah. And so he comes, this son enters the courtroom on the clouds of heaven, uh, which almost always in the Bible refers to the way that God himself travels. You know, most of us, I doubt any of you got here today on the clouds of heaven. <laughs> like, that's just not how human beings travel. So we've got this odd juxtaposition of a human being who represents a nation who travels in the way that only God himself travels. And he comes into this courtroom, um, and even though this son in the picture is somehow subordinate to the Ancient of Days, there's some kind of like quasi divinity about him and I think that's really important because when Jesus calls himself the son of man he's drawing on those kind of ideas from Daniel chapter 7 he's saying not only am I a human being but I'm actually a human being who has come to represent the nation of Israel and there's something quasi-divine about me <laughs> so he's subtly uh, hinting at his own divinity now it's worth just pausing and thinking about that for a moment because when we hear the phrase son of God and son of man 
knowing now what we do about the Trinity, however much we understand it or still have, don't really understand it, um, like we often think Son of God means divine, Son of Man means human. That's actually the other way around. Son of God means the Messiah to come from David's line. Son of Man means the one who represents Israel and it's actually there's this divinity about him. Um, so it's not to, like I'm, I'm not trying to deny either of those two things. I'm saying they're both there, but they often they actually come in the opposite way. And so if we had to read this as Jesus intended and as his original readers uh, were doing uh, thought of it, we should kind of yeah try and think about how they use this language. And Mark 14. I'm sorry, I'm going quite quickly because we're behind time because <laughs> I've waffled. But, um, but if we were to read Mark 14, there's this fascinating exchange between Jesus and the high priest. And the high priest says, um, are, are, you, are you the Messiah? Essentially, are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the cast of heaven. And essentially what he does is he takes this thing, like, are you the human Messiah? And he says, yes, but if you think that's all there is to it, like, you've got a low view of what the Messiah is. I am, and I'm also the one from Daniel 7 who comes on the clouds of heaven. And what's the response of the high priest? He tears his clothes and he says, you've heard this blasphemy. It's not blasphemy if you just claim to be the rightful king. It's blasphemy if you claim to be God. And so the high priest understood that Jesus' claim of being the son of man is to say, I am the Messiah and I'm way more. Like Messiah is a far bigger category than you can think of. I am actually divine as well as human. The perfect human representing Israel and somehow also with a claim to being the God of Israel. All sort of bottled up into one. Says, I came on, you'll see me coming on the cloud. He's saying, I'm going to be traveling as God. Yeah, I think he's essentially, yeah, I think, I think he is, I think what he's doing is he's drawing our mind back to Daniel 7 and saying, uh, so here I am in this courtroom scene. Uh, let me remind you of another courtroom scene. <laughs> and oh, and actually what happens in Daniel 7 um, at the end is that all the other nations get judged and Israel gets the victory, right? And so Jesus is saying, essentially, this is like my courtroom moment and you're going to see me being victorious. And yeah, I think claiming that of himself both claims that he is divine and, weirdly, in some sense, is saying to the high priests, I think you might be in danger of being, playing the role of the beasts. And remember what happens to them. Like, they get destroyed. So actually, the leaders of Israel get cast as the enemies and Jesus casts himself as the one who is God, which is, like, really shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Okay, third column, and then we'll tie this all together. What's the third title? Son of David. Okay, great. Um, and who gives that title? Teachers of the law. And anyone else? Blind Bartimaeus is the other, yeah, the other sort of person. And what's interesting about both of them is that according to Mark's portrayal, both of them are blind. <laughs> and I think that Mark deliberately wants us to get this. And the teachers of the law are blind, blinded by their own pride, misunderstanding, etc., etc. Blind Bartimaeus is literally blind. He gets healed. The teachers of the law don't. They never come to see Jesus as he truly is. And I, I think Mark is trying to play with these ideas, putting these ideas next to each other so that you see the significance of them. Yeah, great. And again, um, son of David, 
essentially brings us back to 2 Samuel 7, where the Messiah is both the son of God, God says, I will be a father to him, but he also comes from the line of David. Um, and so that, that idea of him being a Messiah is all sort of tied up in that. Um, lots more we could say on that, but uh, I'm conscious of time. So he is the son of, um, son of God, son of man, son of David. Who is the Christ? There you go, three, three bits. <laughs> but if you skip to the next um, page, I'm sorry, we are going very, very fast, but hopefully this will still make sense. Uh, you can look at this later. This is essentially a breakdown of Mark's Gospel, bringing out three of the major themes that come through and giving you an idea of sort of how it's structured. And essentially there are, I think, three main themes in Mark's Gospel, which are the activity of Jesus, the things that he does, the passion of Jesus, uh, which is his, his death, and then the cost of following Jesus. Um, and if we had time, we could sort of work through this. But essentially, a lot, I mean, Mark's gospel moves at a ridiculous pace. I feel like I'm talking fast now, but Mark's gospel moves very fast. It's like immediately, 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 immediately. Jesus did this, then immediately he went here. Jesus did this, then immediately he healed this person. And it's just this frenetic pace as Jesus is going around just confronting all these sort of elements of brokenness, whether it's a demon or sickness or, or injustice. Jesus is just going, dealing with it all, the activity of Jesus. Actually, from chapters 116 to 826, you've just got this kind of breathless um, race through all these demonstrations of power as he's healing uh, various different people. In fact, the word immediately is used 42 times compared to seven in Luke and four in John. So like, there's this just pace and this sheer um, uh, just mass of things that Jesus is doing, confronting the powers. Then you get the passion of Jesus, his death, and a huge amount of Mark, given it is a tiny gospel, a huge amount of it is actually given to Jesus' death. And if you look in the table, just sort of here, you see that from chapter 8 onwards, after these demonstrations of Jesus' authority, you've got this long, slow journey to Jerusalem with the idea of his death hanging over him the whole way. Then he pronounces this judgment on Jerusalem, uh, and then you get his death and resurrection. And that portrait, that just takes up a massive part of the gospel. But tied to that as well are these sayings where Jesus talks about the cost of following him. So it's not just this is going to happen to me, but he also says, and if you follow me, this sort of stuff is going to happen to you as well. So three times over here we get this sort of cycle of misunderstanding where Jesus predicts his death and the disciples go, well, I mean, that's not how the story is meant to go. Like the Messiah is meant to rescue us, not die. And so they misunderstand or sometimes they even rebuke him, which is a crazy thing to do. And Jesus says, no, you've got it wrong. I am. And actually, if you follow me, like this is the pattern. Um, it's a pattern of laying down our lives. It's a pattern of winning victory through service and through, um, yeah, I guess, yeah, following me, whatever the cost. And so this, I think, is an overview of Mark's gospel. Um, there's loads more we could say about that, but it's quite an intense gospel. Suffering is a big theme, both the suffering of Jesus and also the suffering for those who follow Jesus as well. Um, so the perfect gospel to give a new Christian. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's actually quite a heavy gospel. Um, it's often referred to as an apocalyptic gospel um, because it's sort of... The word apocalyptic, it doesn't mean the end of the world. It's to do with revelation. It's to do with something being pulled back so you see what's going on behind the scenes. And there's lots of stuff about evil powers and forces working behind the scenes and Jesus confronting them. It's quite a mysterious gospel. Um, there's a lot about it that's quite strange. Um, but I think the reason is because Jesus is portraying himself as this Messiah, 
who is also God, who has come to deal with the beasts, the nations, the powers that wage war against Israel. Uh, but he also really focuses in the men, and we'll see this in a moment, uh, it's not actually on Rome or other nations, but on the devil and demons and spiritual powers that are at work. And so what is the crisis? I think according to Mark, he's saying that this world is under powers, uh, powers that are holding it in captivity. And Jesus, the Son of Man, Son of God, Son of David, has come to release, to defeat those powers and to release the world from their captivity. So lots of themes about power, suffering and evil. Okay, that was very quick, but um, I want us to get on to Luke and then on to the kingdom. So um, <clears throat> let's do Luke and then I'll give you a chance for questions on, on any of that and then we'll, um, we'll move on. So Luke group. Uh, so what I've given you here is a selection of uh, passages from First and Second Samuel, uh, actually, yeah, mainly First Samuel actually, uh, and Luke. And immediately, if you know the stories of Samuel, you, you've got a hint of where this is going. Um, but what we see when we compare Luke's gospel to the story depicted in First Samuel is there are all sorts of connection points uh, between Jesus' life and. Um, the life of someone else. <laughs> so, um, Luke group. Um, I don't know how you want to do this, but would you talk us through... Well, I'll, I'll do the first one. So in 1 Samuel 1 uh, and 2, we have a couple. Um, the couple there are called Hannah and Elkanah. Uh, and in Luke 1, we have a couple uh, called Zechariah and Elizabeth. What is similar about the two of them? This is the second box. Yeah, both couples are childless. Yeah, okay, so there is... Um, and actually the way it portrays it in both is that the woman is barren. I don't know quite how they know that. That's always, that's always bothered me, actually. I feel like there's a stigma attached to there that I, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. don't know what to do with that, really. Um, but there, there's a childlessness in both stories. Yeah, great. What happens in box three in both accounts? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Great. So there's a promise, um, and it's also somehow associated with the temple and the priesthood as well, isn't it? Um, so uh, in the case of Zechariah, he's there in the priest uh, in, in in the temple as well. Um, yeah, Hannah is blessed by a priest. Zechariah, in fact, is a priest um, doing his duty in the temple. Yeah, there's a comparison going on here. Uh, so box four, what is the result? Sorry? God hears. God hears and remembers. and remembers. And the result is? A baby. A baby, yes. There is a miracle child. Yeah, in both stories, absolutely. Uh, what do we know about this child? Uh, he is, in both cases, the child is a prophet. So we get Samuel and we get... John the Baptist, yeah. Um, so Zechariah and Elizabeth the Baptist, which must have been their surname, uh, give birth to a child called John the Baptist. Um, <laughs> silly joke. Uh, interestingly, John the Baptist, same middle name as Winnie the Pooh. So there you go. Um, <coughs> that will be the only thing you remember from today, won't it? That is the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> And Kermit the Frog, and probably plenty of others. My name is actually Liam the Thatcher, which is really weird. Um, yeah, uh, no, it's not. Um, 
uh, but I don't like my middle name, so I'm not going to tell you what it is. There you go. Um, okay, so yes, in both cases there is a profit, uh, and then down here, what is significant in the next box? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in the form of a song. song. Okay, yeah. So both of the um, in both of the stories, there is this song of triumph and thanksgiving to God, and um, both are beautiful. Okay, I didn't expect you to read Malachi to Luke. Don't worry, um, but. You're still going. Fantastic. Um, tell us when you finished. Um, great. But in both cases, we're told that the word of God was rare. So actually, traditionally, from the end of Malachi onwards, um, the, the sort of thought is that God really didn't speak for about 400 years. Um, in 1 Samuel 3, 1, it says that the word of God was rare at this time. But then what happens in the next box is that this prophet child, miracle prophet child, has a precursory ministry. In the sense that actually, although they are there at the start, the story is not about them. It's about them preparing the way for someone else who is next well who is it Jesus that's the classic answer um, uh, but in Samuel who is it David okay yeah great so David in Samuel Jesus in Luke wonderful what do we read about in first Samuel 16 and Luke 3 anointing, anointing. yes yeah <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Great, yeah, well, that's exactly it. Yeah, so there's an anointing upon both for kingship, right? So David is anointed with oil as uh, preparing him to be a king, and Jesus is anointed uh, at his baptism. Um, he is anointed by God himself and by the Holy Spirit. Um, 2 Samuel 7, I've already referred to that, like, key text, uh, but compare that to Luke 3. What, what's the comparison there, this box over here on the left? <laughs> You didn't get that far. Okay. You're still reading Malachi. <laughs> the answer is not in Malachi. <laughs> um, did anyone else get there? If not, don't worry. Yeah. Yeah, it is the baptism. So it's at that moment of anointing. Um, the link, I think, is that in both cases, God says, I, I'm essentially a father to this one who is like a son. So 2 Samuel 7, I will be a father to this son um, who will come from the line of David and what does God say at the baptism this is my son in whom I'm well pleased yeah so there's a father-son relationship I'm sad if you didn't get to this one this is beautiful they were both 30 they were both, oh sorry you can't see it can you <clears throat> let me move that over um, when did David become king age 30 when did Jesus start his ministry age 30 that's amazing. That's really cool. I mean, it's a bit depressing because I'm past 30 now, but, you know, <laughs> my moment for kingship or messiahship has passed. I don't know. Um, but, like, but I think that's really significant. And that's the kind of fact that Luke couldn't have just made up, but I think he throws in there as a way of saying, this is, like, this is significant. Um, Doesn't that relate to something in the as well? Quite possibly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. I think, I mean, I think the link... Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah. So next box along, one Samuel seventeen and Luke four. What's the link there? You may not have got there. Yeah, David and Goliath. So he's facing the enemy. Yeah, exactly. Great. So anointed as king, David battles. Well, David battles Goliath. Um, Jesus faces the enemy in the wilderness. There's this sort of face-off between the two. Um, 
again, I'm not teaching on Samuel, but one of the things I love uh, is actually the, the Hebrew word that is used for the serpent in Genesis uh, is related to the Hebrew word for bronze. Uh, and Goliath is depicted as wearing bronze armour like scales. <laughs> it's like the serpent there in a human form. And then what you get with Jesus in the wilderness is essentially, it's like this wilderness that was like the sort of early creation state and it just feels like it's a back to the garden kind of thing um jesus is battling the serpent who is also like goliath and yeah it's all sort of woven together and the result is a divided crowd so some people love david some people want to kill him what happens when jesus comes on the scene some people love him some people want to kill him this division and so from first samuel 19 to 30 uh, once you finish malachi you can read that long section um and, and luke 9 to 19 you've got this whole series of of travels as the the king travels and there are threats made upon his life and then ultimately to samuel 5 and Luke 19 you get this enthronement in the city this is how it all kind of culminates and in Luke's gospel there are regular phrases that he uses time and time again like the city of David or the throne of David or the Messiah so who is the Christ according to Luke (coughs) he's the new David yeah he's the new David and he shows us in the very way he structures the gospel that's exactly who his life is patterned on in so many ways. And the language he uses is all about his journey towards Jerusalem, the city of David, the throne of David. Um, he is the new David. So what then is the crisis? Well, foreign powers. Foreign powers, yeah. <clears throat> there is a, the rule of God is not yet fully established. Um, yeah. Spiritual battle as well. Spiritual battle, yeah. I think reframing who the enemy is. Um, so it's not it's not a warrior from another nation it's actually a power that holds all the nations in his grasp um yeah so does this mean that luke has made up the story no absolutely not um does it mean actually that everything happened in the exact order that luke puts it probably not but luke wants us to understand that jesus is the new david so he selected the things that truthfully happened and put them in a particular order to help us uh, come to that conclusion that jesus is the long-awaited messiah the son of david and if you turn to the next uh, bit here again I won't go through this but um, if you look at Luke's gospel I think some of the main themes that come out in Luke are to do with Jesus bearing the burdens of his people Um, if you look at this sort of circle over here on the the right it all revolves around Jerusalem and the temple which ties us back to David's life so it all begins in Jerusalem and the temple and then you get this sort of journey through Galilee and there comes this defining point in chapter 951 where it says Jesus set his face to Jerusalem it's like this is where this is where it's going this is where it's all heading towards he goes there it's this long and steady journey that takes 10 chapters in fact often um, in like stained glass and iconography um, this gospel is depicted as, be, as, as an ox which is quite weird but it's because Jesus is making this low long sort of slow steady journey towards Jerusalem carrying this massive weight of burden upon him which is the burden of the people and so he heads towards Jerusalem you get this moment in 1333 where Jesus says uh, the, the chapter 
not the year, um, where, where it says it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus understands my, my fate is tied up with this city and actually it's not that I go there to rule but I go there to perish <laughs> as part of my rule. And then at the end he tells the disciples to stay here in this city. So it begins and ends in Jerusalem. And all the way through Luke's gospel Jesus bears the burdens of his people. So he more than any other gospel writer um, profiles uh, the weak um, the meek and the lowly so in the Christmas story you get Mary's viewpoint and her family rather than Joseph's you get the story of the shepherds rather than the wise men the angel appears to Mary rather than Joseph which is not to say that it didn't happen to Joseph as well it's just that Luke wants to emphasize that there are far more um, warnings to the rich uh, eating with sinners the, the outcasts those who are sick and therefore cut off from community reaching out to tax collectors you get stories about the lost coin in the prodigal son women are mentioned way more in Luke's gospel than anyone else so Mary is mentioned 13 times times you get the widow of Nain the woman uh, with the ointment Gentiles are mentioned the good Samaritan good Samaritan like that was a shocking idea this centurion like time and time again Luke is profiling these people who in society were kept at the margins in order to say Jesus cares about these people (laughs) cares about everyone that's why I find Luke such a comforting gospel actually and he doesn't simply bear their burdens he also provides strength to bear burdens begins and ends in the temple prayer is talked about more in Luke than anything else the Holy Spirit sorry rather than anywhere else um, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 18 times there and 57 in Acts compared to 6 in Mark and 12 in Matthew joy and praise are repeated themes right throughout um, Luke has a particular agenda, which is to say that the king has come for everyone, for those on the margins. He's come to bear their burdens, um, but also to give them strength to bear their burdens. And again, this isn't a session on acts, but um, what do you reckon? If, If Luke depicts Jesus as the new David and Acts is part two of Luke, who do you think the church might be depicted as in Acts? Who comes after David? Solomon. Solomon, yeah. And so what do you see at the beginning of Acts? All the nations gather to this one place, just like the nations came to Solomon. The outpouring of the Spirit, like in the temple. Uh, the church is like the new Solomon, the new temple, uh, filled with the Spirit, given wisdom from God, and sent on mission to the nations. It's, yeah, well, it's not a day on Acts. You'll get that in a couple of months' time, and it won't be from me, so... In fact, if the person doesn't say that, you should say, hey, I've, I've just wondered, actually, do you think that... <laughs> there you go, your brownie points, but there you go. Um, great, wonderful. Okay, that was like a whistle-stop. To, we've done the Gospels. <laughs> um, we clearly haven't. But I hope that that's given you a bit of a sense of um, both what the Gospel writers were trying to do, that is, that they were looking at this vast... Like, how do you summarise a life and a death and a resurrection like Jesus? Uh, well, clearly you can't do it in one go, so you needed four Gospels, and even they don't do the, jo- the job together. Like you did, there's, there's vastly more that you could ever write. But each of the Gospel writers has thought, well, what do I particularly want to draw out, which might be helpful for my audience, or might be different from what other people are saying, uh, but it's very much true, or what's the thing that really resonated with me about Jesus, and how can I take all this truthful material and put it in the way that best conveys that so that people go, wow, this guy's incredible, I want to my life to him and so Matthew I think depicts him as the new Moses come to set people free from exile to teach him a new way of living Mark is the he's both God and Messiah who has come to break the powers of darkness that hold this world and and he does it in a surprising way actually through suffering Um, not through just showing power in the way that other nations do but by 
being killed. That wasn't what anyone expected, but he actually lay there for a model for how we are meant to live as those who follow him. And Luke says he is the new David who has come to establish the kingdom of God, which actually looks different to other kingdoms. looks vastly different, as we'll see in a minute, to what people were expecting. Um, but it's just incredibly powerful. Uh, and with that comes a new age where God will pour out his spirit on all people. We are the temple of God. We are the people who get to experience his presence empowering us. And just as God cared, Jesus cared for the weak and the lowly, our mission isn't something about domination that leaves those people at the side. It's about drawing them in, because the kingdom is for everyone. Does that make sense? Yeah. So none of those themes are contradictory, but together they just show us so many beautiful things about Jesus. And John adds more into the mix, and we'll get to heaven and... Jesus will be like, I don't believe no one ever wrote down that story about me. That was a great one. <laughs> like, there will be so much more to learn about him. But I hope that gives you a flavour for the Gospels. And like I say, like, I haven't told you everything about them at all. But I hope that going back to them um, now, trying to read them through... In fact, a challenge. You don't have to read all three of the Gospels. But maybe over the next com- coming weeks, pick one of them. Maybe the one that you worked on or the one that you low least or or whatever uh, and just try and read it through the lens of what we talked about today and see what you spot that was different as a result yeah okay i'm aware that i've raced through a lot of stuff but we have a long way to go still um so let's just like are there any like burning questions that i'm sure everyone has questions and i have questions um but anything that's like unless we answer that i'm not going to be able to stick with you for the rest of the session or I'm about to lose my faith unless you answer that. Like something at that sort of level of seriousness, I'm really, I really want to deal with that. <laughs> I mean, that set the bar high. We can take it down a notch. Like anyone just got a really important question they want to ask? <laughs> Otherwise, we'll go on. I've got a question. Yeah. Important question. <clears throat> right, yeah. So the theory goes, and this is a theory, I stress, and actually when I studied, I studied a Master's in Theology at King's College London, and in the library, they had this vast theology section, um, they had more books on Q than they did on Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel exists, no one knows that Q exists. It's utterly insane. Um, of course there were loads of documents, and yes, there may well have been this document, but the theory goes that there was a source document that the other gospel writers drew from and particularly drew material from um, and I think, I mean scholarship is divided on it and actually these days doesn't seem to be that bothered about it so I think it's a bit dated really um, uh, but I think the theory generally is that Matthew and Luke drew from this Q source and probably Mark as well and there are questions about whether Mark had access to this source or not oh, we just don't know it's all it's all hypothetical um to my mind it doesn't matter in the sense that i think there were tons of sources because so many people encountered jesus and so many people were like this guy's story needs to carry on and so they told the stories and they wrote them down and um i don't think we'll ever reconstruct a source yeah yeah but i think what i want to communicate is that i was definitely brought up um not explicitly but implicitly given the impression that the way the bible came about was somehow like through like a dictation (laughs) god just sort of said 
here it is, write this. <laughs> and, um, and, and in a way that sidelined any authorial intent or any sense of humans being involved in the process. And I guess what I want to push back on is saying, like, these were human beings who made decisions um, creatively and artistically, and we should treat them as, like, amazing literary uh, geniuses who wrote these books. Uh, yes, under the inspiration of God, but um, thoughtfully and drawing from lots of material. And, and I... The impression I used to be given, uh, or was given growing up, was actually you should be quite wary of any sense of giving the impression this is a human book. No, it, it really is. It's written by over 40 different human authors and edited over 2,000 years by people who will never know who they are. And I think we should be okay with that because God is big enough to, to deal with that and to present this sort of beautiful book. Um, so yeah, yeah.